Okay. Hello again. Hello again and welcome. Um, I'm, um, I'm only going to say a couple of things. Um, this is May, and school is over by May 16. So this is the last rounds for the academic year. And we will resume in September after Labor Day. Um, and so, of course, we had to have a spectacular close, and that is what we have. Uh, you've been coming, many of you, to many of these rounds. And, you know, sometimes it's kind of heavy lifting, and sometimes it's international health or the scientific this and that. And we thought the luxury and dessert, not, no, what we deserve is what we deserve, which happens to be dessert is to hear the words and the work of a gifted, gifted writer. I've, I've invited my good colleague and now friend, Jen Laurie Goldman, to introduce Maria Hamm to you. Uh, Jen Laurie is a lawyer and a poet, and she is increasingly a member of our narrative medicine work. Um, she brought Marie Howe to uh, work with a group of students here a couple of years ago, and she now did us the luxury of bringing her back. So nice to see all of you here on this wonderful rainy afternoon. Um, thank you, Rita. So welcome. Um, I'm really honored to introduce Marie Howe to you. She is a spectacular and fierce poet, and with her three books of poetry, she has pushed herself to new places, new forms, new ways of entering and understanding the world and helping us to understand ourselves. I'm in awe of how in each one of her books she shares with us her growth and daring as a writer, invites us into the rooms of her poems so that we can be there together. Each a decade apart, Marie has published The Good Thief, What the Living Do, and The Kingdom of Ordinary Time, and they're available, not The Good Thief for some reason, but they're available in the back, and I urge you uh, afterwards to get them. Uh, she also co-edited with Michael Klein a collection of essays, letters, and stories entitled In the Company of My Solitude, American Writing from the AIDS Pandemic. Her poems have been in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Plowshares, they've been everywhere, deservedly so and she um, has gotten fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Guggenheim Foundation. She got her MFA here at Columbia, a little bit downtown, and teaches at Sarah Lawrence, where I had the privilege of going to school as well, um, and at NYU now, and has taught at a number of low residency programs and writing retreats. Let me just take a moment, if you'll bear with me, to say a thing about or two about her poetry. Um, in a book that Gregory Orr wrote called Poetry as Survival, he said that the personal lyric helps people survive the vicissitudes of experience and the complexity and anguish of subjectivity and trauma. We invented, we the human, invented the personal lyric as a way to survive crises. Poetry, he says, helps us to make contact with our most intimate emotional and spiritual lives, helps us to know ourselves and others. I believe that Orr is talking directly to Marie Howe's poetry. Her poems are stunning in their disarming simplicity, but even more so for their power to unsettle and unearth deeply trapped knowledge and memories. In Howe's poems, a father's violence is enacted a few lines away from young boys tying up girls and tormenting them in a neighborhood garage. A brother dies of AIDS, a woman yearns for a child, a father abuses his daughter. 
and an open jar of raspberry jam is a sign of going on. In her poems, we experience how living is a way of remembering, of honoring. It is with ordinary moments in ordinary time that her poem takes on the greatest leaps, confronts our greatest pains. Take the poem about a broken phone and being on hold with the phone company, pushing a lot of buttons and talking to more people who ask you to push more buttons and then wondering at the end about a life without the phone, without connection. Marie writes about what matters, how we live, what we do to each other, what we lose, and how we survive those losses. Our world is confusing and chaotic, and this is likely true whoever you are, wherever you live, but her poems offer us some containers filled with a kind of truth, the courage to concede limits and vulnerability. Her poetry brings a frame and an order to the most disordering of experiences. Not a formula to get over the hard stuff, but how to be fully in it, fully human. As Marie said in an interview, any story told for its own sake is not poetry, it seems to me. We all have stories to tell. It's the complexity of the human heart that I think is poetry's subject, the complexity of the human experience. Her language is direct and cinematic. Her poems stay with me. So whenever I see a cemetery, I think of her lines from The Grave. Quote, that first summer I lay on the grass above it as if it were a narrow bed, just my size, and lying on the ground above my brother's body like a log floating on a lake water above its own shadow. Another poem, The Spell, recounts how a four-year-old from the backseat of a car can ask just the right question in just the right moment, take us from a story of a tuna salad sandwich to acknowledging the loss of a dear friend and the as-yet-unlived life. The poem holds us on that journey from the secular to the sacred. In the very early years when I was studying to study poetry at Sarah Lawrence, I lived with Marie's What the Living Do. Her poems looked me in the eye. They said to me, be brave. Her poems have been my teachers. As she has said about her own writing, we don't tell a poem what to be. The poem tells us something we need to know. It's in the process of writing that we discover, that we learn, that we see, that we inhabit the space of uncertainty. And maybe in a nod to Gaston Bachelard, she has said, I wanted to make poems that were rooms, and inside the rooms, action, dialogue, like moving photographs so transparent you don't think about the photographer. I wanted the poems to be like that, the room where something important was happening that couldn't be explained. It could only be shared. So we are lucky to have Marie with us today so we can enter those rooms of her poems and be with her for a little while there. Thank you. beautiful, isn't it? It's like listening to a story. You guys feel far away. I know it's hard to come closer. Does anybody want to come closer? Because it's hard to talk to you when you're farther away. I'll get closer. Thank you. Anybody, anybody tempted to come up? Just a little closer. I'd move this, but it's, it's taped down. Oh, thank you so much. That's so nice. Thank you. A new configuration. 
I'm, I'm very honored to be here. I'm very honored to be associated in any way with the program, the narrative, I forget what it's called, narrative medicine program. This notion of actually listening to each other um, and, and, you know, actually saying, how is it going with you? Um, tell me how you are, really, is, is of course what art does. Art asks us to be present. Um, and it hurts to be present sometimes. Other times it's delicious. On a rainy day in a sickening cab, it, it's not so pleasant. But then I get to be here. Um, my brother John um, was 28 years old when he died of, after living with the AIDS virus um, in 1989. He um, was, I was one of nine children in my family. I was the second oldest, of uh, the oldest girl, which in an Irish family is the oldest. Um, and my brother John was the second youngest. He was 11 years younger than me. But we were best friends from a very early age. Um, from when he used to say, uh, well, he was born and we were best friends, essentially. <laughs> it's like, hey. Um, he was an amazing man. Um, and he was a real teacher to me. Um, so I'd like to read some poems about Johnny. In those days, as some of you know all too well, people could die very quickly in the 80s. You know, they died in a day, a week, uh, just quickly. And um, John actually had lymphoma um, and was treated for lymphoma. Um, but then he contracted pneumocystis pneumonia. This is just before they figured out how, you guys figured out how to cure that. And he did actually die and come back. Um, he was one of those phenomenons um, in the intensive care unit. He, he did die and then revive and got over. I mean, it was one of those things where everybody in the hospital kept visiting his room and saying, what happened? Um, so here's a poem called For Three Days about that time. For three days now, I've been trying to think of another word for gratitude because my brother could have died and didn't. Because for a week we stood in the intensive care unit trying not to imagine how it would be then afterwards. My youngest brother Andy said, this is so weird. I don't know if I'll be talking with John today or buying a pair of pants for his funeral. And I hated him for saying it, because it was true and seemed to tilt it, because I had been writing his elegy in my head during the seven-hour drive there and trying not to. Thinking meant not thinking. It meant imagining my brother surrounded by light like Schrodinger's cat that would be dead if you looked and might live if you didn't. And then it got better, and then it got worse. And it's a story now. He came back, and I did, by that time, imagine him dead. And I did begin to write the other story 
how the crowd in the stifling church snapped to a tearful attention how my brother lived again for a few minutes through me. And although I know I couldn't help it, because fear has its own language and its own story, because even grief provides a living remedy, I can't help but think of that woman who said to him whom she considered her savior, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. How she might have practiced her speech, and how she too might have stood trembling, unable to meet the eyes of the dear, familiar figure that stumbled from the cave when the compassionate fist of God opened and crushed her with gratitude and shame. I love those women, you know, Mary and Martha, do you remember them? I love how they walk out and say that. If you had been here, my brother had not died. Um, here's another wonderful day. You guys know, the other, the other unsung um, story, it seems to me, about the last weeks of someone's life is how sweet they are. How, what a relief it is to finally stop everything and just be together and talk and be still and, um, I mean, it's awful, it's excruciating, it's unendurable, but it's also so sweet, isn't it? To be together um, in the way we always want to be, but we're also busy. So here's a poem called A Certain Light where um, John inadvertently overdosed on all the pills he was taking. A certain light. He had taken the right pills the night before. We had counted them out from the egg carton where they were numbered so there'd be no mistake. He had taken the morphine and prednisone and amitriptyline and fluorineth and vancomycin and halcyon too quickly and had thrown up in the bowl Joe brought to the bed a thin string of blue spit, then waited a few minutes to calm himself before he took them all again and had slept through the night and the morning and was still sleeping at noon or not sleeping. He was breathing maybe twice a minute and we couldn't wake him. We couldn't wake him until we shook him hard calling, John, wake up now, John, wake up. Who is the president? And he couldn't answer. His doctor told us we'd have to keep him up for hours. He was all bones and skin, no tissue to absorb the medicine. He couldn't walk unless two people held him. And we made him talk about the movies. What was the best moment in On the Waterfront? What was the music in Gone with the Wind? And for seven hours he answered, if only to please us, 
mumbling, I like the morphine, sinking, rising, sleeping, rousing, then only in pain again, but wakened. So wakened that late that night, in one of those still blue moments that were a kind of paradise, he finally opened his eyes wide and the room filled with a certain light we thought we'd never see again. Look at you two, he said. And we did. And Joe said, look at you. And John said, how do I look? And Joe said, handsome. Joe is, um, you know, the man John loved and lived with. The last time, the last time we had dinner together in a restaurant with a white tablecloth, he leaned forward and took my two hands in his hands and said, I'm going to die soon. I want you to know that. And I said, I think I do know. And he said, what surprises me is that you don't. And I said, I do. And he said, what? And I said, know that you're going to die. And he said, no, I mean know that you are. <laughs> this whole thing about telling stories, you know, this is our oldest thing we've ever done. Remember long, long, long ago when we were around the fire together? And we would tell the stories. Um, this is a source of comfort and is a form of, of um, well, you know, I got thought, I hardly read this poem, but I want to read it because of you guys here today. It's called Pain. He rose on the surface of it like the layer of water on the top of a wave that won't break. You've seen those swells cold and moving like something breathing you can't see, collecting and collecting until it seems uncontainable, heaving on and on, rising and rising and growing bigger. When it got very bad, he'd say, tell me a story. And after an hour or so, he'd say, we got through that one, didn't we? Until a day came when he said, Marie, you know how we've been waiting for the big pain to come? I think it's here. I think this is it. I think it's been here all along. And he did take the morphine. And he died the next week. cold outside. Soon I will die, he said. That was during the heat wave that summer. The orange lilies bending toward the house beside the driveway. The heater in his car broken on and blasting. And the green shade flapped against the window screen as if what was out there inhaled and exhaled, sliding away from the window, banging lightly against the sill, sucked flat against the screen, peeling off, 
and blowing out again. Today, the cold outside is bright and brittle, heaps of hard snow between the sidewalk and the street, and look, someone has shoveled a narrow path in front of the bakery so that walking, a person has to step aside and let another person through, or pass through as the other person steps aside. Soon I will die, he said, and then what everyone has been afraid of for so long will have finally happened, and then everyone can rest. <coughs> the gates. I had no idea that the gate I would step through to finally enter this world would be the space my brother's body made. He was a little taller than me, a young man, but grown, himself by then, done at 28. Having folded every sheet, rinsed every glass, he would ever rinse under the cold and running water. This is what you have been waiting for, he used to say to me. And I would say, what? And he would say, this, holding up my cheese and mustard sandwich. And I would say, what? And he would say, this, sort of looking around. <coughs> Isn't he adorable? <laughs> He's such a Buddha. This is what you've been waiting for. He used to say that to me when I'd be crying or with a broken heart. Well, Mayor, this is what you've been waiting for. What? This? Grr. Darn. Late morning. I was still in my white nightgown, and James had drawn me down to sit on his lap, and I was looking over his shoulder through the hall into the living room, and he was looking over my shoulder into the trees through the open window, I imagine. And we sat like that for a few minutes without saying much of anything, my cheek pressed lightly against his cheek. And my brother John was dead, suddenly close and distinct. It seemed finished as if time were a room I could gaze clear across. Four years since I'd lifted his hand from the sheets on his bed, and it cooled in my hand. A little breeze through the open window, James's warm cheek, a brightness in the windy trees, as I remember, crumbs and dishes still on the table, and a small glass bottle of milk and an open jar of raspberry jam. Um, I grew up uh, in a large Irish Catholic family and we, you know, we went to church every Sunday. You know, we didn't miss a Sunday. Anybody, you know what I mean? When we had to come home and Sunday brunch, we had to tell the whole table what the gospel and the epistle was about. And if we didn't know, we had to go back to church. 
so I grew up with those stories, and I love those stories. You know the story, there's so many wonderful stories, but um, when Jesus is walking, you know, through somewhere, he's healing people, and a woman it can't get to him, and she thinks if I just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. Does anybody, did anybody here ever see, this is, there's a great film about the Reverend Al Green. Remember Al Green? Let's stay together, loving you ever. Um, remember? And then he became, you know, he had, a, he had a change of life. Remember when somebody threw a plate of grits in his face, right? And uh, he became the Reverend Al Green. There's this amazing documentary about him. Did you see it? Did anybody see it? He does a sermon about that woman, somebody, and it, but because he, he's Al Green, right? He's a genius. He says, he's telling the story and he's, he's saying, somebody, somebody touched me. And he's, he's doing this whole thing about being Jesus and suddenly feeling like, somebody touched me. Somebody, somebody touched me. And, and then he starts singing it, you know, somebody touched me. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. Netflix it. Get the thing. The Reverend Al Green. It's just, it's just, it's magnificent. Here's a poem called The Star Market. The people Jesus loved were shopping at the star market yesterday. An old lead-colored man standing next to me at the checkout breathed so heavily I had to step back a few steps. Even after his bags were packed, he still stood, breathing hard and hawking into his hand. The feeble, the lame, I could hardly look at them. Shuffling through the aisles, they smelled of decay, as if the star market had declared a day off for the able-bodied, and I had wandered in with the rest of them. Sour milk, bad meat, looking for cereal and spring water. Jesus must have been a saint, I said to myself, looking for my lost car in the parking lot later, stumbling among the people who would have been lowered into rooms by ropes, who would have crept out of caves or crawled from the corners of public baths on their hands and knees begging for mercy. If I touch only the hem of his garment, one woman thought, could I bear the look on his face when he wheels around? After the movie is a poem that really, really ought to be called After the Divorce. That's the secret. After the divorce, I'm thinking of retitling it. Two references. One is to Simone Weil, the great 20th century philosopher and theologian, um, and one is to Meister Eckhart, the great German theologian from the 13th and 14th century. And then there's another reference to Janis Joplin. After the divorce, after the movie. My friend Michael and I are walking home arguing about the movie. He says that he believes a person 
can love someone and still be able to murder that person? I say no, that's not love. That's attachment. Michael says, no, that's love. You can love someone, then come to a day when you're forced to think it's him or me, think me, and kill him. I say, then it's not love anymore. Michael says, it was love up to then, though. I say, maybe we mean different things by the same word. Michael says, humans are complicated. Love can exist even in the murderous heart. I say that what he might mean by love is desire. Love is not a feeling, I say. And Michael says, then, what is it? We're walking along West 16th Street, a clear, unclouded night, and I hear my voice repeating what I used to say to my husband. Love is action, I used to say and say to him. Simone Weil says that when you really love, you are able to look at someone you want to eat and not eat them. Janis Joplin says, take another little piece of my heart right now. Meister Eckhart says that as long as we love any image, we are doomed to live in purgatory. Michael and I stand on the corner of 6th Avenue saying goodnight. I can't drink enough of the tangerine spritzer I've just bought. Again and again, I bring the cold can to my mouth and suck the stuff from the hole the flip top made. What are you doing tomorrow, Michael says. But what I think he's really saying is, Marie, you are too strict. You are a nun. Then I think, do I love Michael enough to allow him to think these things of me, even if he's not thinking them? Above Manhattan, the moon wanes, and the sky turns clearer and colder, although the days after the solstice have started to lengthen we both know the winter has only begun. I'm so sorry, I just got a text from the babysitter. I just have to go, yes. Exclamation point. It's so weird to look down and go, am I still bringing her home? I'm like, yes. <laughs> we supposed to have brought her home 20 minutes ago. Oh. Um. <laughs> I want to read you some poems by this, from this book. Um, there's a dear friend of mine, Jason Schinder, um, who had died a couple of years ago. Jason was the author of two poetry collections, one's called Among Women and one, um, uh, Every Room We Ever Slept In is the other one. He, he created many, many anthologies. He did this amazing thing. 25 years ago, he uh, held a reading at the West Side Y, you know, on 63rd Street or 64th Street, whatever that Y is. And he, from that first reading, which he took out a $500 loan, to pay the writers for, he created this thing called the writer's voice. 
which then went on to offer workshops and readings. And then he created the writer's voices throughout the whole country at YMCA's throughout the country. Jason was also an amazing poet. And he, um, he got sick with cancer and we, his dear friends, found him very frustrating because according, well, we didn't think he was dealing with it very well, which is, of course, hilarious, right? We thought we knew better. After he died, we were put in charge of um, editing his manuscript. And we saw that he had been, of course, dealing with it all along. And, well, At sunset, your death must be loved this much. You have to know the grief now. Standing by the water's edge, looking down at the wave touching you. You have to lie, stiff, arms folded, on a heap of earth and see how far the darkness will take you. I mean it, this, now, before the ghost, the cold leaves in your breath rises before the toes are put together inside the shoes. There it is, the goddamn orange going into rose descending circle of beauty and time. You have nothing to be sad about. Jason spent a lot of his life in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Um, has anybody here been to Provincetown? You know what a funny town it is. Wonderful. Well, here's a poem called Provincetown. Jason and I spent, I don't know, 20 years, every single summer, we would walk up and down the street looking for another leather jacket for Jason to buy. You know you have to have a thing you're always looking for? You know what I mean? You never really get it, or you do get it, but then it's not the right thing. Provincetown. I bought a $300 black leather jacket in Northern Lights to eliminate the cause of war and my own intolerance. The lesbian saleswoman, nose slightly pulled off by a gold ring and beautiful breasts rubbing up against her blouse, stood so close I inhaled her breath. I left pizza crust on the bench beside town hall, promising to bless any creature who would swallow it. Some sexual aroma hung from a slim, hipped, sweet-talking cross-dresser. I was lonely again, like the window of George's pizzeria when the sunlight passes through it. So I burned a tattoo on my left arm of a snake wrapped in a snake as a symbol of the power I don't have. I didn't. I looked out the window at the ocean. Time, I thought, which takes everything but itself. Fuck you. <laughs> I love that.
Let me just end. I'm going to finish with... Um, Two short poems. Um, one of them is called My Dead Friends. My Dead Friends. I have begun when I'm weary and can't decide an answer to a bewildering question to ask my dead friends for their opinion. And the answer is often immediate and clear. Should I take the job? Move to the city? Should I try to conceive a child in my middle age? They stand in unison, shaking their heads and smiling. Whatever leads to joy, they always answer, to more life and less worry. I look into the vase where Billy's ashes were. It's green in there, a green vase. And I ask Billy if I should return the difficult phone call. And he says, yes. Billy's already gone through the frightening door. Whatever he says to do, I'll do. And then here's, a, I'll just end with a poem for us. It's called What the Living Do, and it's in the, in the, um, in the form of a letter to my brother. What the living do. Johnny, the kitchen sink has been clogged for days. Some utensil probably fell down there. And the draino won't work, but smells dangerous. And the crusty dishes have piled up, waiting for the plumber I still haven't called. This is the everyday we spoke of. It's winter again. The sky is a deep, headstrong blue, and the sunlight pours through the open living room windows because the heat's stuck on too high in here, and I can't turn it off. For weeks now, driving or dropping a bag of groceries in the street, the bag breaking, I've been thinking, this is what the living do. And yesterday, purring along those wobbly bricks in the Cambridge sidewalk, spilling my coffee down my wrist and sleeve, I thought it again. And again later when buying a hairbrush. This is it. Parking. Slamming the car door shut in the cold. What you called that yearning. What you finally gave up. We want the spring to come and the winter to pass. We want whoever to call or not call, a letter, a kiss. We want more and more and then more of it. But there are moments walking when I catch a glimpse of myself in the window glass, say the window of the corner video store, and I'm gripped by a cherishing so deep from my own blowing hair chapped face and unbuttoned coat that I'm speechless. I am living. I remember you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
A question for anyone in the room, huh? Frost said something really great about that. He said, no, no tears for the writer, no tears for the reader. No discovery for the writer, no discovery for the reader. And, and John was a great editor. You know, I, would write a, I write a lot of poems and I throw a lot of them out. And I would call John up and I'd read him something and he would go, no, didn't happen that time. I mean, it's very difficult. You have to have a real experience when you make the poem. And if you have an experience when, it hap when the poem happens, I believe that the energy of that original experience stays there. And the poems I love, like by Emily Dickinson or Whitman or Frost or Tony Hoagland or Nick Flynn or any of the, the, the zillions of poets who write, somehow something, it's still happening, you know? It's still happening. It's not a record of what already occurred. Um, so, but it's really hard. I mean, I don't know how to do it either. I mean, I, I write so many things that get thrown out because it's very hard to do it. But I don't think we ever really write about loss. I feel like we write it, they're all love poems, you know? And I think that that's, that's part of the, 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 the energy too. I mean, you know, it, they're, it, 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 it's, it's, they're love poems, you know, that somebody, um, I mean, I'm not denying unendurable loss, you know. I mean, it's life-stopping, life-changing, you know. And yet, that's not, I think, what people actually write about, you know? Yeah. yeah. What's the difference between love and attachment? You tell me. <laughs> that poem sort of... Yeah, she doesn't know what she's talking about, that woman. <laughs> I mean, that's part of the, the, the story of that poem, right? She thinks she knows, she doesn't know anything um, about love, really. Um, so, um, I don't know. These are, these are questions that I leave for the reader to ponder along with me. With me, not, I have no answers about that. Anybody want to say anything or ask anything of anybody in the room? You got Scott here. We're just waving, we know each other. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much for your company. Thank you. Thank you.